to another episode of the Digital Humanities and East Asian Studies podcast. I'm Amanda Schumann. Today, co-hosting with me are Alan Christie and Maggie Maggie Green. Nice to have you both back again. Thanks, Hello. Amanda. Thank you. So in today's episode, we plan to talk about the DH Asia program at Stanford, the first round of which took place uh, last spring in spring 2016, and discuss more broadly maintaining healthy skepticism in the digital humanities. That is skepticism that can be productive. For this, I've asked Tom Mullaney to join us as our special guest. Tom is a professor of Chinese history at Stanford and director of the DH Asia program. In addition to his first book, Coming to Terms with the Nation, Ethnic Classification in Modern China. He has a forthcoming book with MIT Press titled The Chinese Typewriter, A Global History of the Information Age. He's also working on a future book on the Chinese computer, also with MIT Press, and is the founder and editor-in-chief of a very popular website called Dissertation Reviews, which has grown substantially, I think, over the last half decade, more or less. Welcome, Tom. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Great. So, Tom, before we get into this current discussion, um, could you just tell us a little bit more about your own background? So, for example, what got you interested both in China, East Asia, but then eventually in the digital humanities as well? I'd be happy to. Uh, my pathway to Chinese studies was, like many, through the study of language. A phenomenally inspiring first-year Chinese language instructor at the Johns Hopkins University, where I was an undergrad, and uh, the reason that she was so inspiring, uh, Li Laoshi was so inspiring, was because I was not in any way committed to being a China studies or even an Asian studies student. Uh, I could have gone in many directions at that time. In fact, uh, I, I had set it as my goal when leaving high school that, in fact, the language I wanted to study was Arabic, uh, and maybe that would have led me into the study of a different part of the world. I, I probably was, I would say, pretty committed, um, whether or not I knew it, to the study of history, but it could have just as easily been the history of another part of the world. But language, it had to be. I, I, I've always loved and always imagined uh, how uh, tremendous it would be to become proficient, if not functionally fluent in all the world's languages. That that was that was long a dream of mine in some sort of kind of world. And uh, I, so originally, the one discipline that I had given serious consideration to before I learned more about it was linguistics. Um, but stepping foot into a first year linguistics class at Hopkins, and being so thoroughly disillusioned by what I saw, then led me astray to, I guess, the path that I'm now on. Uh, but I think that for me, as I think back on the kinds of projects that I've either pursued or considered pursuing, that original framework has never left me. I've never considered myself, I probably never will consider myself a Sinologist or an Asianist. I consider myself an historian, uh, first and foremost, I would say, and then a historian of a, a particular human experience. I think that's probably why I I work very heavily in Chinese archives, but I tend to gravitate towards projects that either intentionally or accidentally end up taking me to other parts of the world because that matters to me a whole lot. Uh, digital humanities is also an accident. Uh, I, I am, in addition to being an historian of China and East Asia, an historian of technology. And so one pathway of the two pathways I think that led me there is as a natural sort of third part or, or, or of the trilogy of the, of the work that I've been thinking about with MIT Press, the first 
being a, a history of Chinese information technology, basically from late movable type and the telegraph through the advent of computing, the second volume, which you mentioned, being computing onward. And uh, the central premise of both of those books uh, has been that during the modern period, Chinese as the one major non-alphabetic script uh, on earth has found itself in a, a structurally unequal information infrastructure, uh, an information environment for roughly two centuries. And, and within those two centuries of work, which have been dismissed by many, as one historian called it, or one writer called it a technological abyss, this idea that nothing, nothing happened in, in the space of, uh, of Chinese writing during the age of telegraphy and typewriting and computing and so forth. I argue that actually some pretty phenomenal things took place within that, but it requires that we rethink many of the key words we use. Now, a, a manifestation of that inequality, I think, and I'm trying to uh, I, I don't think I'm alone in this, is the application of computational methods to humanistic research, which requires the kinds of technologies that are part of this structural inequality that, that are biased towards alphabetic scripts over non-alphabetic. And I'm talking about character encoding schemes. I'm talking about optical character recognition platforms and algorithms and a whole host of other fundamental dimensions of digital humanities that are far more advantageous to alphabetic scripts uh, than they are certainly to Chinese, and that this has manifestations for the broader scholarly community in which DH Asia is significantly more challenging than DH Europe, let's say, but not because of any lack of interest among Asianists in computational uh, research techniques, but for deep structural reasons that I think one can find the origins of in 19th and 20th century history. Oh, that's really interesting. So, uh, yeah, no, I mean, I, I completely agree with you. The search mechanism, for example, that we're using on the Maoist Legacy Project, there are Chinese tokenizers that are supposed to help the search work better, but it's still a mess. And the solar search engine is something that is a powerful uh, sort of backend um, indexing framework that's used by a lot of database projects, but it is definitely skewed towards an alphabetic language and such a nightmare dealing with these things. We're already approaching and entering the age, well, we're already in the age of petascale, but as we approach, imagine exascale frameworks for, I mean, humanistic research hasn't reached that scale, let's say, but as we as we approach that framework, that, that kind of scale, that which cannot be found through search for all intents and purposes does not exist. We can scan and digitize the world's uh, archives and we can move, you know, we can move to a, a seemingly digital age. But until we have the platforms as robust for describing and cataloging and, and finding and marking up these databases, uh, which are have already exceeded the scale at which humans could do this, then this is this is a dangerous place to be. I really want to emphasize this is a dangerous place to be because, as I think we all know in our own teaching and in, in interacting with students, uh, more and more students and, and, and scholars, professional scholars, treat the digital as their ontology. Many of them do. It's like the, it is the, the denominator above which they're trying to figure out, okay, what are my cases? What is my numerator of this larger denominator? But that denominator, the digital, the searchable digital, 
is a fraction of a much larger denominator, uh, which is a mixture of that which has not been digitized, that which has been digitized but cannot be found in any, you know, manageable way. And collectively, we might simply set equal that new denominator, that new, that new fragment. We might take that new fragment because it's so large or seems so large and basically treat it as if it were the whole world, let's say, the whole world of sources, the whole ontology, and then go about our business. It would be the biggest, quietest, burning library one could imagine. It would be the quietest destruction of source materials ever, arguably. Grim words for grim times. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, this is, uh, you know, this is something, uh, yeah. I mean, all these issues are issues we've been thinking about in doing this project, too, um, in terms of we recently did a, what do you call them, midterm reports or whatnot on the project, and I was arguing, uh, I had to contribute the, something about the technology to the report. So I, one of the things I was arguing is that what we're doing, I mean, we have digitized some of these documents and OCR them, but, you know, part of what we're contributing with the search with the OCR is that I think we're maybe the first or one of the first big projects to take historical documents and to, to digitize them and to OCR and use this advanced sort of indexing and searches in Chinese. So, um, and we've sort of figured out that, you know, OCRing is really a mixed bag with Chinese documents, um, which, I mean, is a function of the software. It's what, it's what Tom's saying. It's, you know, how it was designed and who it's been designed for and who's, but yeah, I was arguing in the report that one of the things we can contribute is that we've been trying to not modify the software itself, but find ways in which we can more efficiently do our work and still have it be a huge sort of contribution in terms of technology transfer, like we could actually give some of our process or some of our code to like an open repository that other people who are working on Chinese language projects like ours could actually go ahead and use that and try to find ways around it. I mean, you know, what you were saying, though, too, about sort of this sort of one of the structural inequalities, uh, you want to talk about any tools, visualization, network analysis, whatever, that these are all written, they're not just written by scientists, they're written by they're written by people who tend to, as you said, write for an alphabetic language. These are not things coming out. These tools are not things that are coming out of a Chinese language environment or, or whatnot. I do, I do just want to add one point, which is, and I think that, I think that this domain, let's call it, has a great deal to offer the entire world, including, including OCR platforms, etc., for alphabetic scripts. The way I tend to think of it is, you know, computational chess. You know, we cracked that nut a long time ago. Chess is a phenomenally complex game, and yet it is amenable, it's conducive to iterating every possible move, you know, every possible game, every possible move. And then, of course, and you know where I'm about, what I'm about to say is the game of Go or Weighty. This is a game in which that mode of conceptualizing the computational problem in theory, it works, except as, as one as, as one writer put it, if you try to craft a Go game the same way that we've crafted chess games and, you know, play every possible game, every possible move, you could do that, but there isn't enough, there isn't enough time remaining in the life of the universe. And so what they had to do is they had to re they had to go back down to the basement level of their thinking and take up what many, you know, looked at very, very, very uh, excitedly as a more challenging problem. Uh, so when someone looks in the face of Chinese, but also Arabic, uh, South Asian scripts, uh, a whole variety of scripts that have not really been at the table in these conversations. And when, when engineers 
uh, are invited to to weigh in on these questions. In many cases, I see this, I mean, in the history of the Chinese typewriter, you see this all over the place. Engineers around the world were, in a sense, hypnotized by how interesting of a problem the Chinese typewriter was. And so you had engineers from countries across the world, not just China, Taiwan, the Sinophone world. And I think the same kind of phenomenon could be possible, where I know when I talk to colleagues who have not a horse in the race of Asian studies, uh, have no, do not do any work within Asian studies, do not speak any Asian, read eat, read or speak any Asian uh, languages. When you get down into the ways in which it diverges from the, con- the conventions they know, they actually get really excited and say, okay, well, maybe we could use facial recognition algorithms instead of classical textual recognition algorithms. Maybe that's the way we could attack this. And as they do that, I, I feel this is an article of faith, but they might actually go back to their own, their homes, let's say, and say, you know what? This thing we developed for CJK or this thing that we developed for South Asian scripts, that might actually work a whole lot better in the, in the alphabetic realm. And so I think that there is, it's, it's not just about adding more to the table of DH scholars or platforms. I actually think it could have a foundational redesign effect on practices that think that they're, you know, doing just fine, let's say. Just wanted to add that point. It's a really good point. Alan, it sounds very familiar to some of the talks we had back at Santa Cruz with some of the people in in, um, IT and computer science about the sort of ways in which, you know, if we developed something that was, for example, at the time, multilingual, how that might then contribute to what they were doing as well. It's certainly the pitch that I've been trying to make over the years. I think Tom just did it much better than I have ever done it before. So I'm really grateful for this on recording. I'm going to go back and listen to it many times now <laughs> uh, because uh, it, it is, it is, I think, one of the things that uh, we have to offer in the, in the realm that we're working in, a reset of approach to problems uh, that may actually both be radical in, in uh, its charge of what to do, but then have you know, ripple effects back into the, to the realms that these folks cared about the most uh, for their own work. So I was wondering now if you could tell us a little bit, Tom, about the DH Asia program and how this how this fits into, well, I guess, why don't you tell us first of all how you came up with it or a little bit about how you conceived of the program and the kinds of goals you have for it? I, I'd be happy to. Uh, so DH Asia began in the 2015-16 academic year. So this year, we're now in our second year, already starting to plan for the third and in essence, DH Asia was inspired by, well, in essence, it was, I, I saw calls for postdocs or grad fellows in a, a small handful of universities and institutions that I respect and admire a great deal. And these were uh, institutions, I mean, besides institutions in East Asia, institutions in Western Europe, on the East Coast of the US. And one of the first thoughts that came to mind is I'm in an institution that has a formidable DH scholarly community, uh, specifically, I mean, exemplified by projects that I won't list, but like the Republic of Letters Project, uh, the Literary Lab. We have an epicenter to, to which people from around the world gravitate for talks, visits, postdocs, fellowships, you know, short-term residencies, collaborations. We also have a formidable uh, Asian studies program. We are one. We are we are one of the major Pacific-facing West Coast institutions. And so, having said all of that, uh, we do not have a. I, I realize at that moment we do not have, in any formal sense, a digital humanities community that is that also intersects with Asian studies. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't a 
a whole lot of graduate students, uh, advanced undergrads for that matter, and uh, postdocs and, and faculty members that are either actively involved in digital humanities Asia uh, before the letter or in some respect, but that there was no real epicenter for that kind of community. And there were lots of individuals who I would categorize as curious skeptics or maybe skeptic curiosos. I don't know how that would, would play out. And so the, the idea was let's not run headlong in trying to build a center and build a building and, and raise money for a postdoc because, frankly, I don't believe in if you build it, they will come. I think that way of living life, I, I think it's, uh, it doesn't work a lot. And so the question is, okay, before we set about building anything, let's see what uptake there is. Let's see how many people feel that they have a stake in this. And so let's keep this real close to the ground. Let's keep this real close to people's concerns. And let's treat this as a community forming and educating, but also empowering workshop that has a, a workable budget uh, that doesn't have to go knocking on an infinite number of doors, although I had to knock on a lot of doors. That's why it, when I originally thought of it, I decided to center around the idea, not just of talks, but of these intensive short-term, I call them short-term residencies, but they're, they're, you arrive on a Monday, you leave on a Friday, well remunerated and, you know, well wined and dined. But the fact of the matter is, and anyone who came last year can tell you this, those three days, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we work you. I can be totally honest that, that those, the, the visit of those three days is modeled after a campus visit. It's modeled after, I know, the experience I had when I interviewed here at Stanford or have interviewed other places. And the reason for that is not to kind of get our money's worth or something so crass, but because out of a belief that the dedicated scholars out there actually want to be, you know, as intensely engaged during these visits as possible. I know for myself that when I go and, you know, I go and I get out of the airport, I take my taxi, get to the hotel, I'm kind of wandering around by myself. Uh, I go to the talk, I get taken to dinner, and then it's and then it's over. Those visits are all fine and good. And I'm they're often wonderful in their own ways. But I, I, when I think of those visits in which someone learns that I'm coming and asks me to do a second talk or maybe a third talk or meet with grad students or uh, have one-on-one -on -one meetings, and then I really have to come to know the community, you know, it's, it's just so much more potent and meaningful. And life is short, and what are we doing this for? And so when the visits come, when the, when the short-term residents come, they do give a classic 45-minute lecture followed by Q&A. We do ask that it not be just a book tour, meaning we want to know what you're working on now, not what you're selling from five or ten years ago that is your polished, your most polished work. But then those are accompanied, and this has been one of the most important parts of DH Asia, and one that I'm trying to, I, I, I really believe in, and I've been trumpeting to other institutions who are considering something like this is every resident is also required to lead a three-hour hands-on workshop in which uh, roughly, typically around 15, maybe to 20 grad students, faculty, archivists, librarians, uh, some undergraduate students have participated, come with their laptops and nothing else. Uh, well, besides their clothes. Uh, they, they, come, they, they come, they have no text corpora, they have no database to work on. They might have something they're interested in. They don't have the software installed. They don't even know what the software is, perhaps. And we go from, or the resident leads us, from download to some manifestation. And this isn't so people leave. Oftentimes, there are people in the room that have as much expertise, as, as robust expertise as the resident, but we, we, we asked that the resident make this something that someone could come to and really leave, not as an expert, 
but in the sense of, oh, that's not so bad. Or, or I mean, a sense of, I, I, okay, I can see the, I can see the tectonics of this. I can see how the gears work. The general premise is that something that I think is incredibly disempowering about many of the DH talks I've, I've witnessed or seen is when someone gets up there and shows us their exquisite, visually stunning finished product and tells us that they read X million number of, you know, character database. It's, it just sounds, A, I couldn't produce that beautiful visual and B, I don't even know what it means to track a corpus of that scale. And so I may have come curious and a little bit skeptical. I'll leave equally skeptical, but maybe a bit disempowered. And the idea of this is not to, you know, convert people. I like the skepticism. I believe in the skepticism, but at least to show them this is what it looks like to crack these eggs, to, to cut this bok choy, to fire up the oil. Like, this is what it cooking looks like. Yes, if you really want to do this, you have a lot of work to do. But is is to, uh, what's the word, um, demystify that process. And then that's the second big part. The third big part is we set out, just, just like campus interviews, if we have someone coming in who we know that there are certain grad students or colleagues who work in similar areas, We'll extend invitations. Would you like a 30-minute or an hour one-on-one meeting during the visit? And you'll have you'll have space to meet. And here's your schedule, so that someone can a grad student can show up saying, you know what, I I am involved in DH and I've got this really hard problem I'm chewing on. Can you help me? You know, casual coffee and chit chat is fine in life, and there's place for that in life, but that's for later. Like, let's get to work. Is the is the is the sense. All within a very happy, very like well-fed, uh, plenty of alcohol, uh, you know, kind of, kind of deal. But you know, let's let's work. I mean, it sounds terrific. And the people who I've talked to, who you know, we've interviewed Hilda and Javier, so I know a little bit um, about what they did. How is it funded? I really like this idea of you know empowerment. This idea that you're going to actually have these hands-on workshops and you have the time, the time for this, and uh, have people just show up and and they have to, you know, in, engage themselves rather than just hearing it delivered to them. That's that's uh, terrific. In terms of funding, to have people come and stay for that for for three days, how do you do yeah, that? Yeah, let's talk nuts and bolts. I mean, let's talk cash because this is important. Um, you know, so we give an honorarium of $800 to each resident, the economy, airfare. We do research into where their home institution, what their home airport is. We do a search. Uh, we come up with a reasonable but generous ceiling, and we say, you you know, you can go up to this, but it has to be against actual receipts. Mm-hmm. There is built in a, you know, a dinner after the talk. We also, instead of having the resident keep receipts, we add a bit of honorarium that basically acts as a food budget so that if, you know, lunches or breakfasts or things like that comes out of that pot so we're not collating millions of receipts at the end. And, you know, the insanely expensive to and from SFO airport taxi, you know, you're, you're, you're talking about a few thousand dollars per resident. Mm-hmm. Now, the stuff that's the money that we're talking about that isn't included in the budget, and this is really important, is, of course, the pre-existing ecology of DH at Stanford. We don't have undergraduate RAs, so we're not sort of stealing from that budget through the VPUE or where else. But we are, for example, we do have a phenomenal support from 
Elaine Traharn and uh, the former director of SESTA, Zephyr Frank. This is the Center for Spatial Textual Analysis, which mm -hmm. was the first kind of buy-in supporter for this project, but now there are many more. And they very kindly make available one of their workstations. It's a, it's a desk with a computer at it that's in the open SESTA kind of uh, floor where SESTA is housed. And during those three days, Javier and Richard and Hoyt and Hilda could leave their laptop there. They could leave their stuff in bags there. All of their one-on-one -on -one meetings would take place there. Their talk was literally 50 feet you know, down the hall. So instead of having someone run around the face of Earth and there was a, a sense of home base. Now, of course, there, there is also free time built into the schedule. So people use the archives and libraries and met friends and, and things of that nature. But we, we wanted them to make sure they had a place to come home to. And SESTA was, uh, from the very beginning, just absolutely wonderful about that. I don't know how much they would budget that at, but that is a kind of, you know, hidden budget line. But otherwise, all the budget lines are what I said. And so if you, you can do that calculation for yourself, 800 plus the whatever the mm -hmm. 240 uh, food additional budget, let's say, plus a very, very nice dinner with a group, uh, which varies, plus airfare from a variety of regions, plus these four, let's say, taxis to and from the home and receiving airport. Uh, that's what that's your per resident. So last year we did five to start it out, not only because of budget, but again, to see if there was a there there. Mm -hmm. So is this in the ballpark? Is this the kind of stuff you're interested in talking about? Yeah, 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 so, yeah, yeah. Tom, it's wonderful. Uh, no, it's, it's okay, really interesting. We're, uh, we're, all, we're all learning a lot about the backstory. We've seen the front, we've seen a little bit of the front end on, on online, but now we're learning the backstory. And that's the key. It's like we all hide our backstories. And so then the next person that comes along and wants to do something thinks it's all mysterious. And it's, and we just, we don't talk about money enough. We don't talk about just. Or, or, you know, like infrastructure when you're talking about SESTA there. I mean, that's really huge. Yeah. You mentioned dissertation reviews in the beginning. And one thing that I've been wanting to do and um, is simply just make all of our working files public and not necessarily public, but in the sense that if someone said, okay, I'd like to build an online community in which I work with 40 editors spread out across the world who have never met each other with a budget of $100 per year and publish 1,000 reviews or 500 reviews per year. If you just say it like that, that sounds, and it is, and I'm very proud of it. It's like impressive. But it's just, it's just Google Doc after Google Doc and email template after email template that we, that we refined and figured out over the course of years and years and years. And now one of the most valuable things about dissertation reviews, obviously, is the reviews. The other thing is this framework, which is repeatable. You know, if, if someone else wanted to build a different infrastructure, they have to just start over because we mm -hmm. don't share our backstories. Um, this is something I was, I mean, it's kind of related to a, a little bit, you know, that just this idea of like open repositories online where you can go in and I mean, we have GitHub, okay, so we have something where you can go and grab code. But you know, what you're saying there is even I mean, this would be even be be more useful to people who are just who are just interested in like, how did you do it? So let's stop reinventing the wheel. Give me the sort of structure. And you don't have to be it's not like GitHub, you don't have to be uh, good at coding or understand any programming to do that. You know, you have it, you, you have the files and you know how to do it. You can explain how to do it without have, making people feel like they have to go and learn something highly technical. Last spring when we met in Leiden, when you told me that dissertation reviews ran on a $100 a year budget, I could not believe it. That's what it costs. 
And uh, ironically, all efforts to think through how we would fund or budget or things of that nature, the, the, all those scenarios played out quite negatively, in fact. And it had to be, in a sense, this collective labor of love and by a group of people and a constantly shifting group of people. There's a very good point, I think, that's made by a handful of people. I think Tina Liu at Yale has made this point, among others, not, not many others, but I think among others, is that infrastructure, scholarly infrastructure, is one of the least attended to dimensions of digital humanities. It's, it's, it's just not sexy to anybody. It doesn't produce beautiful visualizations. You cannot talk about the immensity of the corpora, whatever it is, but nothing gets done without it. And it's by no means operating at peak performance. There's so much capacity for, for novel forms of scholarly infrastructure not just dissemination, but also engagement. That seems to be to be waiting to be tapped. Or maybe it's been tapped somewhere and just I don't know about it or you don't know about it or someone else doesn't know about it because it's, you know, the experience of it is taking place, uh, I don't know, in Ottoman manuscript uh, studies or it's taking place in, I don't know, some subset of a comparative literature department by a group of grad students who have a – and it's kind of honeycombed out there. But some model that would work beautifully, let's say, for Chinese studies may already exist and uh, we're just not scaling it. Let's move on to, um, you know, some of the some of the other things I wanted to get to. So we briefly mentioned a few, but didn't talk too much about the projects from the first round and the participants. But maybe you can channel that into my question regarding the sort of feedback from the first round or your own reflections on the program. I do know you mentioned that you, you gave a talk recently regarding these reflections, and this is where the sort of healthy skepticism comes in. So could you talk a little bit about feedback and some of your own reflections? Uh, definitely. So I, I guess the two main channels of feedback, obviously, are from the residents themselves and then from the community here. The mechanisms for the, those feedback, I want to be very honest, are interpersonal, are qualitative, let's say. We know through some metrics uh, of reception of the program, which is really phenomenal, every single workshop was filled to capacity with people, you know, unfortunately having to be turned away. But of course, that the scale of that is not enough to make any sort of statistical judgment. But the qualitative is what we've been focusing on as we move forward. And I'll just maybe give one example from each channel. I think one one question or one bit of feedback from residents, and this isn't true for everybody, but it's something that I've synthesized out, is that we need to be thinking already about the future in the sense that the current framework of five residents or seven residents coming and giving uh, workshop or get, and giving a talk and meeting with people is a fantastic phase one for this kind of venture. It forms community. It brings a pre-existing community into some sort of relationship. It empowers. It uh, raises consciousness about the specific issues within Asian studies and digital humanities that our colleagues in DH Americas, DH Europe don't think about necessarily, but that eventually will run out of people to invite or phrased differently, there are only so many times, maybe, that you can have these exceptional, exceptional because they're focused on CJK or South Asian scripts or Arabic workshops for grad students before the grad students themselves or, or, or those organizing the program say, okay, to what end? What are people doing with this power they now feel they have? And so the big transition point will be how to think about phase two. Uh, where are we going? 
I, I really like this feedback. We've received other feedback, but I think this is a particularly important one because DH Asia, just like dissertation reviews to me, is, is only worth doing because it won't exist forever. To me, this is political uh, in the sense that you form an organization to bring some domain and experience into into our into our consciousness, into our network, into our framework. But I, but counterintuitively, the more successful that it is, the more it should actually kind of disappear or become irrelevant. My goal, my hope would be that collectively, through all the efforts that are going on across the world now and are increasing, that it would be silly to to call something DH Asia because. No one would call something, you know, DH alphabet or DH, <laughs> uh, you know, DH English literature because that's where, that's what, that's, that, that's the starting point. And so it would be amazing if we get to a place where through the emergence of scholarly networks, but also us sitting at the table with technologists and saying, we need to work together to build better platforms and tools so that all of us can, you know, have off the shelf power. Imagine in, you know, 10 years worth, 20 years that, that, that state of being has come to be, well, then the, the moniker DH Asia would seem like, why are we still doing this? Mm -hmm. And I don't think there's ever, maybe not ever, but in many cases, there's not a good reason to start an organization which has this politics to it. And I don't mean politics in terms of party politics, obviously, but has a politics to it that also desires to live forever. Because if you secretly desire for it to live forever, then you secretly desire that your problem live forever in order to, you know, justify your existence. So I like the idea of, okay, what's, what's next about this? And that's what the recent news of the Mellon Sawyer seminar, uh, a sizable grant through the Mellon Foundation that will allow us to uh, hire a postdoc in DH Asia and two graduate fellows in, in DH Asia. I know in my way of thinking, but also the larger committee's way of thinking here is that's that's going to be the pivot around which we begin thinking about going from phase one to phase two. On the community side, on those who showed up side, I was blown away. There's still lots of things to think about, but, you know, like I said, before launching this, I did a lot of legwork. I met with a lot of grad students. I emailed a lot of people just to basically ask the question, is this of any interest to you? Like, would you show up to this if this existed? Does you care about this at all? And, you know, that there's an inherent asymmetry of power when you're talking with a, fa a faculty is talking to a graduate student. So, you know, you never know if the data you're getting is accurate. Maybe the person said yes because they thought that's what I wanted to hear. So you still don't know. Day one happens. Will anyone show up? And people did. Not only early career scholars, graduate students, but also, you know, senior colleagues who are not, uh, let's say, as engaged in computational research as others, but were there. <laughs> had their laptops, downloaded the program, asked the resident for help with setting something up. It was it was like really magical, um, actually. And then, and this was a crazy day. I don't remember what which event it was, um, but I went around the room and I shook people's hands afterwards to thank them for coming. And it turned out that we had members in the workshop, like people who had signed up for it and come, from, they had driven down from Berkeley, they had driven up from Santa Cruz, some early from Michigan was already coming to the area, but but basically signed up for this uh, as part of the visit for a totally unrelated you know reason. Uh, had come to Stanford, and that just really struck me of okay, you know, so so there is there is something here, and this is serving a role and serving a purpose. I think the th the way that we need to start for the phase one to phase two issue of how do we build into the future mm -hmm. now that we've 
excited a few people, empowered a few people. They say, okay, yeah, I actually do have an idea. There, there is a, there is a source base that I would love to bring into one of these platforms. Well, you know what? Grad students in their coursework or their dissertation research do not have a lot of time to sit down and key enter and clean up code or, you know, clean up text uh, corpora in the decreasing time frame in which they are expected to finish. And so in my way of thinking, and this is where, you know, then why can't graduate students work with an undergraduate RA? They're early career scholars, just like uh, everyone else. Um, and they could get help with someone who is not just a, not just a, a day laborer, but is really working with them side by side on getting their platform up and running. As early career scholars, why can't they work through uh, conventional classical university frameworks in which they work with an undergraduate RA, not just someone to do the hard work and, and not be part of the intellectual venture, but in the same way that when I work with an RA within one of these DH projects, yes, it, they're doing tedious work because that's the tedious work that is DH, and it's, mm -hmm. it's part of a process. In my own office, I'm doing the same work side by side with them. Mm -hmm. But without that kind of support to expect a grad student in a PhD program, in a framework where they're expected to finish faster and faster, it's unreasonable to imagine that they can dedicate this kind of energy to that. And without that kind of energy, DH doesn't exist. Uh, any DH project doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. And so many grad students, it seems to me, and this is anecdotal, but it, I, I've yet to see it counteracted, is many graduate students or PhD students first come to one of these workshops or talks, maybe in their fifth year, their sixth year, they're really attracted by the Javier is a good example, I think, if I, if I remember his timeline, they might have skills or, or, or frameworks, but you can't just add DH to an intellectual project, a dissertation, should I have a DH chapter would be, in a, would be a meaningless thing to say. And so many of them have to wait until this potential second project, whatever that means, to start exploring these kinds of avenues. So the kinds of challenges that I like are ones in which something has to change at almost every level of our practice for this to reach its fullest potential. It's not just move the vase from this side of the table to that side of the table, then the room looks great. It's actually thinking about the water supply and jurisdiction, you know, the legal code. And But it's not rebuilding a world. It's just making certain adjustments at multiple scales of the framework in concert with each other that allow for new and positive uh, outcomes. So I feel, I, I feel very, I'm a very optimistic person in general as much as I am a kind of also a dark person, but I, I, I do feel very optimistic about this. I, I, I mean, I think it sounds like a great idea. Um, I mean, I'd have to think more about how, how you would, it's not so much about working with the, with an undergrad RA as finding the right person and then having them, you know, how you would work out their own work in their, in their program, how you would actually get them to work for you in, in that sort of relationship. But I mean, I think you're totally right. Actually, one of the things I was very surprised about when I went to graduate school at Santa Cruz, but I mean, I think this happens to a lot of people is that it's very much about you and your project and doing everything on your own. So, and I had come from an environment and I'm un unusual in this respect, but I had come from an environment at the Center for History and New Media where nothing was done that way. So everything was collaborative. There were research assistants working with senior historians working on their projects that were digital humanities projects, but you know, these were teams of people, these were not projects where it was, you know, one person 
working on something alone at their computer all the time, like typical dissertation work often is. So, and I'm totally for that mode as well. I know I know that you're not a, saying you're against it or anything mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. but I think, I mean, collaboration is wonderful, and monastic scholarship is wonderful too. Interdisciplinary is wonderful. Hardcore disciplinary is is wonderful as well. It's it's. Uh, that should be a choice that people have, but there really is no choice. There are, there are mm-hmm. far fewer choices that are safe choices, ones that, you know, have entail failure, the possibility of failure, but don't basically have a high probability, a, a higher probability of failure. Collaboration just has a hot, much higher probability of failure structurally, and therefore it's not even a choice that many people contemplate in the first place. That, I think, is the big problem. In my way of thinking, it isn't about promoting collaboration as such for its own sake, but promoting and building and rebuilding certain infrastructures so that collaborative pathways or monastic me and my my archive pathways are available, are tenurable, are hireable, are grant winnable, are, you know, reviewable. The fact of the matter is, is right now that that world still hasn't come into being. And I think that's the I I think that's where I'd advocate focusing our energies, because otherwise we risk losing those people that say, you know, I I don't want to work on a team or I don't I I, whatever, for whatever reason, they come to that conclusion and saying, you know, oh no, we're not asking you to totally change that. We're asking you to make it so that your 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 brothers and sisters out there that do want to do this aren't simply excluded from this possibility mm-hmm. because of really unreflective, almost disconscious structures in our profession. Just briefly, uh, if you could say, okay, two things, if you could say just something very briefly about the participants and projects for the next round, if you could just, if there's any particular sort of themes or how you chose them. And then if you have time, if you could say a word or two about this talk that you gave about skepticism. Okay. I, pr- I probably won't have time to fit all that in. Do what you can. <laughs> So we are tremendously excited about DH Asia 2017, and we are, you know, we've been this year even more generously supported uh, not only by SESTA, but also the Center for Interdisciplinary Digital Research through the Stanford University Libraries, as well as the Center for East Asian Studies, uh, the Confucius Institute, and a number of other outfits. So I think that people having seen 2016 in person realize that this is something that they want to see more of and be part of. And uh, we're very excited to be welcoming scholars working on South Asia, uh, two scholars working in South Asia and inner Central Asia, religious studies, China, Japan, working on digital ethnography, online digital ethnography and what that means, textual analysis, space analysis. So it's going to be a really diverse set of, of, of visits. We do not impose a theme. We want to make sure the cohort speaks to each other as a, a group, even though they're not coming at the same time. But there is no imposed theme. For the, the visit to Colombia and the chance to speak to their community, which is my community, I come from the Columbia PhD program, and it was really lovely to see everyone again. It was, it was fantastic. I, I think that they understand and share a similar culture as Stanford when it comes to the intersections of Asian studies and DH. I think there are, there are many practitioners, both faculty, grad students, really interested and very active on that front. And there are those who probably have never shown up to a DH event maybe in their life for a variety of reasons, or those who show up but are among the first to ask that really tough question of the speaker. 
I believe in those tough questions. The main point I tried to make in that talk, in which I was, I made a point not of not showing a single slide. There were no visuals. There was no enchanting network diagrams to ooh and ah. It was a conversation with just us, you know, speaking and listening and, and back and forth. And the idea is I truly believe that the kinds of critiques and questions and hard-hitting questions that come up during the Q&As of digital humanities scholarship have the chance of reinvigorating and renewing the kind of critical engagement that should be coming up more in so-called analog humanities. So the same thing that I think can, that DH Asia has to offer, let's say DH alphabet, for lack of a better word, I think that digital humanities has to offer to the analog humanities. Because I'm still an archival historian, first and foremost. I believe in being in the presence of these work. I believe in thinking through the politics of the archive. I believe in materiality. But I'm fully invested and you know heavily involved in the digital. And so when I hear the term, I actually believe in this term, kind of analog humanities, which to me means the humanities that is in the presence of these material forms, in, in, in the presence of these archives, but cannot imagine that the digital revolution has not happened. It's kind of like, what is orality in the age of script? It's not the absence of that. It is, it is living in the condition of that. So what is analog humanities in the condition of the digital age? I think that that is an opportunity for a, a rejuvenated, reinvigorated, and reimagined uh, critical historiography that uh, I, I feel very optimistic about. I just wanted to say, Tom, that was very elegantly put there at the end, and I think it's also something that has come up in several of our previous conversations, so I want to I'm thank so you yeah, for reiterating that for all of us. So thanks, thank you so much for taking the time, though, today to join us. No, thanks for having me, and uh, I, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you all in person and to meeting some of you in person. So thank you again. Thanks also to Maggie and Alan for taking time out of your busy schedules. The DH East Asia podcast is available at www.dheastasia.org, as well as can be downloaded from iTunes. On our website, we also have links to relevant sites and other things mentioned in this episode. Thanks so much for listening. We hope you'll tune in next time.